Welcome back to Talking Guitar, brought to you by the Carter Vintage Exchange and the North American Guitar in Nashville, Tennessee. Lindsay here, and this time I'm sharing a rare in-person chat with the wonderful Jeff Jewett. Even if you've never played a Jewett guitar, odds are very high another guitar you own bears an element of Jeff's work, because he has been the go-to guy for finishes and colorants for everyone from Gibson, Taylor, Martin, Santa Cruz, and more for many years. But in addition to supplying the big names, he's been handcrafting his own guitars from his spacious workshop in Cleveland, Ohio, creating a diverse array of guitars that uniquely blend elements of Martin and Gibson with plenty of modern influences. In collaborating with incredible players like Matt Thomas and trading tips with fellow Ohio luthier Ryan Gerber, Jeff is constantly taking on new challenges and expanding his craft. As mentioned, this was an in-person chat, so if you're listening on the podcast app, be sure to check out the YouTube video version for some more workshop footage and photos. Now, please enjoy my chat with Jeff of Jewett Guitars. Thank you so much for having me here at your workshop to do this little interview and this little tour. Yeah, welcome to Jewett Guitars. <laughs> Lovely downtown Cleveland, Ohio, one of the oldest commercial buildings in the city, believe it or not, and uh, got a lot of character here. Uh, I guess maybe if I can talk Lindsay into it, we'll give you a little tour later. Oh, definitely. Something like that. For sure. Cool. Yeah. But welcome. Thanks yeah. for coming up. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, this is a little a little side trip I get to take to pick up a client's guitar and get to... We, we had you down in Nashville last year, but the interview, unfortunately, was interrupted by a lot of jackhammering, so this is the makeup interview, but I think it's benefited because we've had that much more time to, you know, to get to know each other through emails and Instagram and the past interview, so this will be a better interview. Yeah, that. yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> it, 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 that was a, a kind of a, a, a um, hard one to go because there was so much happening outside. Yeah. And anyways, but uh, yeah, so uh, what we did is uh, Lindsay kindly offered to come up and uh, actually pick up a... Uh, a guitar for a client that I just finished building and she's gonna carefully take it back to Nashville uh, today and then we decided well we'll let, do an interview while she's here so yeah I guess fire away <laughs> <laughs> well the first questions I always like to start off with are the kind of get to know you questions mm -hmm. so yeah let's talk about how you got into guitar making well I was again um, I went to college in uh, I, I like 1972, and you know it was the golden era of guitars, acoustic guitars. Crosby, mm -hmm. Stills, and Nash was a super group. John Prine had just come out with the first album. On and on and on and on. Everybody had a guitar in my dorm room except me, <laughs> and so I had to get a guitar. And the funny thing was, as I was learning to play it, uh, I was also a studio art major at the time, I, would, I just kept wondering, how the heck do you make one of those things? I mean, that's just, it seems so complicated. So I had that headworm for, oh, as many years as I can remember. And then I just started sort of saying, well, maybe I can do this. Uh, and so I started researching and researching, and there was very little out at the time when I started in the mid-80s. So I bought a kit from the Martin Guitar Company and I put together using, I think, cinder blocks, bricks, and Elmer's glue or something like that. It came out okay. But then the Cupiano book, the William Cupiano book came out and that was just a godsend for people like me because it had really the step-by-step -step instructions to right. make a complete guitar from scratch. So I built uh, several guitars, called myself a luthier, started advertising, and it really wasn't happening quick enough for me and my wife at the time and our new house mortgage and a lot of other <laughs> things. So I gravitated towards other things and returned to guitar making, believe it or not, uh, about 14 years ago, because uh, it's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I sort of folded my existing business, which is I, I make a lot of colorants for the musical instrument business. I folded my... Uh, guitar making business into that and here we are yeah yeah I mean that's you have kind of a unique um, position like having been part of that industry for so long and then it does kind of dovetail so ni nicely into that and yeah you have this massive workshop space yeah. that yeah. you're able to kind of transition in, into building so that's it's a really interesting combination of things that you do and um, so yeah so did you start doing the colorants and the stains pretty early on was that sort of the first like business pursuit that you, you um, that was, um, that came about just really because I was using products at the time and, you know, you had to have one colorant for 
putting on the bare wood if you want to stain the wood. Another one for putting in the finish to do like a sunburst. Mm -hmm. And then another one to do touch up and repair and all this stuff. I got this crazy idea that, well, you know, maybe there's like, you could do one product to do, you know, everything. And I do have a, a pretty good science background, but I did not know enough of the chemistry. So I sort of went back to school, took some organic chemistry courses just so I could talk to people in the industry. And the result was I came up with a, a stain, which is really the go-to product now for people like Taylor, Gibson, Collins, Santa Cruz. Uh, and that to me was just, you know, the epitome of, mm -hmm. you know, making it. Yeah. But then, you know, I thought, well, you know, I've always loved to build guitars. Maybe I should try doing that again. So fast forward from 1980, no information on guitar building to 2012, the internet, social media, yeah. nothing but guitar makers. So the world had really changed for the better too, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of information out there. Yeah, lots of tons of videos, tons of books have been published since then. And it, it seems like, as we were talking about last night, like luthiers are so forthcoming with sharing information with each other. They are and, now. And trading ideas. Yeah, <laughs> apparently that wasn't always the case. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you call somebody up, a, like a, lo a local guitar guy, if you could even find one. And it was like, well, I'm not going to tell you anything about how I do stuff. Yeah, know? trade secret. <laughs> trade secret. Yeah, not so much now. Um so yeah, so when you first started, so you started with that Martin kit, and uh, so how many did you build in that first stage after that? I built uh, two. Uh, I built a, a kit guitar, and then I built uh, the from scratch guitar. Then I started doing a lot of repair work, which boy, if you want to, it's a really good way to learn how to really up your luthery game if mm -hmm. you do repair work because yeah. you see all the problems that mm -hmm. develop. Um, it's same thing with even you know I did antique furniture repair for years and years and years. And you would see what problems develop as a result of humidity and heat and all the things that, you know, we throw at furniture and guitars over years and you see braces popping loose and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's really invaluable stuff. Um, and so that gave me a really good foundation when I got back into it of what, what right. I wanted to do. And uh, so I started, uh, back in about 19, uh, well, 2012. And uh, I made one more kit guitar, which was a Stuart McDonald kit. And then I just, boom, I just, uh, I just said, I, I can do this, I can do this. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it, it's not an easy uh, uh, business, it really, yeah. to be honest with you, because there's a lot of people that do it. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the boutique, uh, uh, had, fortunately we had a pandemic that just shot guitar sales through the roof. So it, it's been good in a way, but, um, it's, uh, it's a fascinating business because mm -hmm. to me, um, I've always had a very strong art background, but you're halfway through a build. Okay. Like, you know, like this build, uh, is, you know, about ready to be finished and all that stuff you're already thinking about what you want to do next. Mm -hmm. You know, like what kind of new neat thing you can do. Because you see this, all this stuff on social media that people are doing. And you go, well, so like it, it's a never ending chasing the tail of the dog, you know, <laughs> to get better and up your game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But yeah. there's so many good people in this business, really, quite quite frankly. It, it, it's hard. So if, you know, somebody were going to get into it today, uh, just, I would apprentice with somebody. That, that's the yeah. way I would do it. And find somebody that you can apprentice to for two or three years mm -hmm. and then, you know, find your own. You know, yeah, way. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting talking to so many different luthiers and seeing the different paths that people take to get into it. And there are some guys who, maybe they work at a shop like Loudon or Martin or something like that. So they get, a, they get that assembly line experience or a lot of folks just, they go to, you know, apprentice with Samaji or go to one of the schools and they start off on their own and they're just from the get-go building like, you know, one or two guitars at a time. And, uh, but yeah, I feel like doing something like apprenticing with another, like a luthier like you, somebody who's had a lot of experience would be kind of the, the best of both worlds in a lot of ways. Well, it is. And, you know, I mean, if I had to do it all over again, I would definitely not be self-taught. Now mm -hmm. I, I'm self-taught. I know a few other uh, luthiers yeah. like Ryan Gerber is completely self-taught. And I mean, now there's a story right there. I mean, he, the second guitar he built, he took down to Nashville to 
have Phil Kage yeah. critique it. Yeah. And he said, this is a great guitar. And Ryan was on his way. Yeah. Um, yeah, some people can clearly be autodidactic and they're they're good to go. Great word. I feel like, yeah, that's a $5 word right there. I feel like I'm not that kind of person myself. So I would I would offer the, the apprentice uh, role. But no, that, that would be the way that I would do it if I had to do it again. Uh, yeah. Definitely. And, and there's plenty of people out there that would... Uh, probably gladly take on an apprentice um, you know you might starve for a little bit but uh, <laughs> you'll certainly get uh, information and instruction yeah. that you can't get on your own definitely yeah. yeah and so I mean I have many other questions but before we kind of dive off of that topic I want to talk a little bit more about sort of the idea of being a luthier in like the current world because I was just talking with another person about this and sort of what it takes to be successful and like you are such a great example of like the kind of self-employed luthier who is really good at social media and sort of the I don't want to say the self-promotion side of things because that you know but it, it kind of is in a sense but you you do it in a way where you're sort of inviting people into your workshop and you're inviting them to behind the scenes and I think that really I think that's really compelling to a lot of people and I think not everybody's ready to do that but do you feel like that's a pretty big component of what you do well or do you just particularly enjoy it yourself I have to be honest uh you know uh I really was reticent to enter the social media mm -hmm. platforms. Um, when I started my first business, the internet had just started. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was the way that I sort of built my business. Um, and then what I did was I associated myself with a famous woodworking magazine called Fine Woodworking, and I started writing articles for them. And I sort of promoted myself that way behind the scenes. Yeah. And I thought when I, later on took on the guitar world i kind of do the same thing mm -hmm. it you know it, it was a completely different world you have to get into uh social media i mean even you know advertising although we do advertising but um advertising uh in the print media and that type of thing will get you nowhere fairly quickly mm -hmm. uh these days uh but you have to get uh very savvy with uh, the internet platforms and the ideas of uh, social media and Instagram. Like uh, somebody told me one time, do one post a day yeah. on Instagram, just yeah. keep it up. And you know, and then it just, it just builds on itself. Uh, and then it's, and to just to return to this, uh, it's much more of an open world now. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no secrets anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's no secrets. I wanted, well, here's a great example. I wanted to know how to do, uh, I always wanted to do one of these, which is that beautiful inlaid wedge, mm -hmm. which is called an inlaid boxed wedge. And I just, you know, I looked at, I would look at it, I go, I, I, you know, I'm scared to do it. How the heck do they do it? And I saw somebody doing it that's an Irish, or, or Irish or French, Drew Lowry. Lowry yeah. Guitars. Irish living in France. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, he had it on one of his guitars. And so I just said, how the heck do you do that? And I wasn't expecting a response. He goes, oh my gosh, you're the Finnish guy. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll, I'll gladly tell you how I do it. And he just mapped it out, like step one, step two, step three, all through the way through step 12. Yeah. And it was just, okay, easy peasy, I'm mm -hmm. done. And um, so uh, after I'd done about 12 of those, I did the steps on how I did it. Okay, and sort of, you know, taken a little bit of the way he did it and made it my own. And then this was like about three months ago, I saw somebody post the same exact thing. Like, how do you do that wedge on the end of the guitar? And the guy who uh, was doing the post said, well, you should go back to these old posts by Jeff Jewett to oh, see how he does it. Yeah. So it was like this continuing cycle, which is so cool if you yeah. think about it, of information and education. Yeah. But... If you're not used to that, learning that way and yeah. sort of, you know, getting into that, uh, it, it, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to be behind the crowd, I think. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's a long-winded answer. But if I were to tell anybody, you know, apprentice with somebody and get an iPhone and just start posting like crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah get, get, get good at taking the, the glamour shots and also be like kind of open and, and willing to share sort of the behind the scenes stuff. Yes. Cause that's what people really enjoy yeah. seeing. It definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk a bit about your influences. Um, oh my. cause your guitars, I mean, I think of them as sort of being, you kind of sit somewhere between the traditional modern spectrum a little bit. Like you, 
there's obviously like the the Martin sort of sizes, the double O, triple O, OM, and everything. But your guitars also do have a bit more of a modern look to them, and you you do kind of delve into different fingerboard materials and your rosettes are really distinctive. So yeah, let's, what are your influences? Well, my early influences, believe it or not, were really the people who are now the icons in the industry. Uh, Linda Manzer, um, um, Grit Laskin, I think you did an interview with him. Mm -hmm. And um, Richard Hoover, uh, and then Bob Taylor, and then, um, you know, some of the real early influences, you know, were just, you know, the, the, the people that really are just at the top of their game right now. And, um, but again, it was very tough to learn back then. Um, I would say most of my influences today, uh, you know, obviously I, you know, pay homage to the people that got me started in this. But um, it's a bit a, a lot younger crowd now, mm-hmm. and I think that you know when somebody that's you know in their sixties can look up to somebody that's in their forties, going, the level of work you're doing is just phenomenal. I mean that to me is really kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, like many, you know, I started with the classic Martin designs. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I I built O's, I built double O's, triple O's, OMs, I built dreads, and. Uh, you should, if you're aspiring and you want to do this, you should, you know, you get to a point where you got to start making stuff your own. Mm-hmm. So then I started doing things like, well, I designed my own headstock. So now people see this headstock with the cat eye and diamond inlay. They go, that's a Jewett. Mm-hmm. So I really don't even have to put Jewett on here anymore. Yeah. Or Jewett anywhere because people know it. Um, I started doing these solid rosettes. Um, and I learned that off the internet too. And then... Uh, then I eventually got to the point where I just, you know, there's things I don't like about like the classic OM body shape, mm-hmm. like the Martin shape. So you start doing, adding things that, you know, like arm bevels mm-hmm. and then wedges and then sound ports. And then of course a Florentine cutaway and all this stuff. And then I started like doing laminated sides and then doing, playing around with different bracing designs and all that stuff. And you eventually get to the point where you kind of get into your own groove. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where you want to be, is you, you want to hopefully get to the point where somebody will look at someone and go, oh, that's a Jewett. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's cool. I mean, that that's really cool. Yeah. But um, I would say uh, it, it, it's, it, 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 it's a lot of work. It really is. Yeah. yeah. But it's enjoyable. I mean, you know. And a lot of the early guitars that I built, I still have. Uh, you know, I don't, maybe eventually some, you know, but... They're just, I use them as kind of like, you know, signposts along the way of mm-hmm. where I've been. And it's, but as I said, to return to this, there's always, always something new you can do. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, probably going forward, one of the things, uh, I think there's a bunch of things I'd like to do, but um, I really am intrigued by changing the shape and the ergonomics of the guitar mm-hmm. to make it as player friendly as you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not just an arm bevel and, you know, maybe this, that, and the other thing, but the way it sits in the body. Yeah. And you see that with a lot of, uh, like Gallup does that, Tyler Robbins does that. Um, um, there's some, uh, a few Japanese and Asian makers that do, uh, Kathy Winger does like uh, this really cool, like a like, uh, relieved arm or like mm-hmm. cutaway here. I mean, there's just, but to make it really, you know, just, player friendly as much as possible that to me is the challenge i guess definitely yeah and i like that you kind of take the more subtle approaches with it like with your double o which you're i'm going to blame you for the fact that i'm probably going to buy a double o one day because (laughs) because you 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 sort of you you take you change the way you do the lower bout so it has a bigger presence but it still has the comfort of that size which is like perfect it's my favorite size uh double o i've always loved but i always you know the martin kind of standard double o shape just sort of was for lack of a better term, kind of boxy to me. So mm-hmm. uh, I just, you know, I spent a whole winter, it was actually last winter, out there in the shop, just, you know, templates, drawings, and making dummies and things like this. And and the first couple I did, I didn't like, so I changed them again. And they, I mean, 
you know, when you start doing that, that's a lot of time because yeah. not only do you have to do prototypes, but you got to build all the molds because yeah. you can't go out and just buy a mold. So you got to build all your own molds. You got to build all your own farms. But that's you know uh, that's that's the benefit of doing this. And if you love doing it, then you know it, it, it's not a problem. Yeah, yeah, you've got that con that constant desire to pursue the next best thing. Yeah, which drives yeah. you. Um, well, speaking again of, of sort of tailoring guitars to player needs, um, I'd love to talk more about Matt Thomas's guitar because he kind of went above and beyond with oh, wow. his list of demands. No, I don't want to say demands, but like his, his list of things that he really wanted to have tailored to his specific style, which is, I mean, that's such an incredible opportunity to get to have to both for, for both of you, for him to have that opportunity to get that guitar, but for you to also have that, like that really intense feedback and, and sort of explanation of why a particular player might want something so well you bring up a great point which is another thing i would suggest to an aspiring uh you know builder that wants to you know get into the boutique market mm -hmm. which is a specific market but um is find a musician mm -hmm. find a musician that is you know uh, very competent and you know you may have to make the guitar for cost or mm -hmm. something like that, but you know, um, but the feedback you get. So with Matt Thomas, uh, this was a really, really challenge to me because it just brought up things I'd never think. Matt is a 35 year old. Uh, he's actually a Tommy Emanuel protege. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that, but he studied with sense. yeah. <laughs> he he studied with Tommy for like six years or something like wow. that. Amazing guitarist and. Um, I heard him play at Kent State, and I went, wow, wow, wow. And so um, I offered to build him a guitar. But Matt had really specific needs. Now, um, I did not know this, but, you know, players that get up on stage for four hours, you probably know this, it gets uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it really, it wears yeah. and tears. And in Matt's case, he started having neck, shoulder, and back issues, mm -hmm. even though he's only in his mid-30s. Yeah. I did more research on it, and I found out that, yeah, there's like chiropractors in like uh, Nashville that yeah. do nothing but work on guitar guys because yeah. those heavy Les Pauls and things like that. I never, you know, I'd always played sitting down. So um, what we did with Matt is I had him sort of come up with the ideas, and we co-designed a guitar that sat. Uh, he, well, he wanted some other things I cut away. But he placed the guitar like this up on stage, like a classical guitarist. So instead of doing a normal like wedge, which would kind of like it's called a manzer wedge, uh, where it would kind of kick it forward like this if you're sitting down, well, he plays it like this. So we had to do an asymmetrical wedge where the wedge actually goes from the th smallest point here to the thickest point here. Yeah. Well, in terms of geometry of the whole that made, I mean, it was mind blowing. <laughs> so, um, Matt actually, uh, we, we thought about it, we thought about it. So he actually, uh, got on a plane and came up here for a couple days and we just sat down out there with pen and paper and some blocks of wood and things like that. And we got the rough shape down and I built a prototype and he said, yep, that's what I want. But he wasn't done yet. <laughs> Then you get into the nitty gritty. Yeah. Oh, I want this kind of fretboard. Oh, wait. Now, maybe I don't want a standard Martin uh, length. I think I want a scale length guitar. I've never heard of before. You know, I mean, so uh, I was like, you know, and then, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And then he wanted color in it. Now, I'd never done anything with colored, uh, like, purfling mm -hmm. or lines. It was always just basic black or ebony or something like that. So, uh... Matt bought all these sheets of different colored veneer and had them sent here. And then we picked out one that we liked. And then I taught myself how to make my own purfling and binding. Wow. So it was a big benefit to me. Yeah. And when you can offer that to your clients, mm -hmm. like say you're working with a potential client and you say something like, okay, well, I got an idea of like, you know, what kind of sound you want. What's your favorite color? Mm -hmm. Oh, turquoise. Sorry. How would you like to have a turquoise <laughs> binding? Yeah. So it really, it, 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 so it was stuff like that. And, um, uh, but boy, Matt kept, uh, Matt, uh, uh, really kept me busy, uh, with, you know, 
pushing me to try to new things that I never would do on my own. Yeah. And that's what was good. Yeah. Uh, really good. And so I, uh, yeah. And so we built him a guitar and he, he flew up here. This was last December. Uh, he flew up here, got here about 11 o'clock in the morning, put his electronics in it. He did a quick 15 minute strum on it. And then he was doing a sound check at Kent State. Jeez. And I'm like, I can't Cam believe you're doing this. Yeah. And I mean, he, but, uh, oh yeah. So that, but that was, um, I guess if we talk about bucket lists, you know, to see a really accomplished musician have one of your guitars on stage. Yeah. That, that was a very meaningful moment in my career. And that, that's something I'll really, really, really look back on family. But so anyways, I, that's a long-winded answer, I know. No, yeah, no, that's such a such an interesting experience to get to have because, I mean, like like you were saying, like you were trying things with, with Matt's guitar that you wouldn't necessarily think to do on something that you were building for a store, but, and getting pushed to do that was, like, it's something where you might have walked away thinking like, oh, actually, maybe I will bring that element into this next guitar or something like that. But I'm sure in a lot of cases, like, Matt's really specific needs might not be something that you'd want to do on every basic guitar so, no no but knowing that you could do that knowing that you can offer that is really valuable with i think any any discipline and you know artist or you know person that does a lot of work with their hands it's easy to get uh kind of stuck into your own groove if you will mm -hmm. and just you know and uh to have that experience of you know really kind of having somebody go you know you got to try this you got to try this or this that and the other thing it's very very helpful i would you know urge it to anybody and you you again most people are going to balk at you know i don't want to do that or yeah. I, you know i don't like that but it, it'll make you better yeah uh, definitely yeah i think a lot of people would they kind of draw the line on what they do and what they don't do and so for you to be willing to do that and to to go that extra step with that was yeah i think that's that really speaks to your yeah. your kind of philosophy and, and your way of Um, do you, what do you do for like bracing? I, you mentioned the laminated sides. Um, what are some of the construction things that you have settled on as being sort of like these are your go-to? I'm still uh, a big fan of the traditional Martin mm -hmm. concept of bracing with the X-brace mm -hmm. uh, being really that's a structural nexus of a guitar. I don't um, like to experiment a lot with bracing because that can be a total disaster. Interesting. You know, particularly if it's a guitar that you sell to somebody. So I kind of stick with a, a traditional, uh, we have kind of two choices in guitar making. We can do scallop bracing or tapered bracing. And there's benefits to both type of bracing stuff. I kind of combine the two, sort okay. of like uh, something that John Slobod does. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing John Slobod does, uh, which I do uh, frequently, is I forward shift most of my bracing. Mm -hmm. uh, because I do favor the smaller guitar size bodies, like the O's and yeah. the OM's, it does give you a little bit more bass mm -hmm. and mid-range presence when you do that. Um, and so that's kind of something that I have settled on um, the other thing that um, I've done is I've really settled. There's a really um, different um, vibe and sound that you get with the different species of bracing, like mm -hmm. Adirondack bracing right. versus Sitka versus some of the Euro uh, sprucing. And one thing that I've been doing, which I did on this last guitar, I finally call it my inner species bracing guitar. <laughs> we use Adirondack for the main X brace. And then for the tone bars, we use some European spruce. And for the finger bracing on the bass side, I use like German spruce. And for the finger braces on the treble side, I went to Italian spruce. And very surprising sound. Mm. I mean, you know, it's something I can discern, you know, I, I heard it in this guitar. Yeah. Now, there's other things that were going on that, you know, we, we really tried to... Uh, formulate a, a sound for this particular client that he was looking for but you know sometimes you just never know yeah and then something that i started a couple years ago which i would recommend to everybody is um understand some of the scientific 
scientific testing that you can do mm -hmm. during the build process to see where your build is going. Right. You can analyze frequencies. Uh, there's some simple apps that you can do with a microphone and a laptop or just an iPhone app. Uh, you can um, uh, correct or push a guitar to a different sound before you put a finish and strings on it. Mm -hmm. And that's something I had to learn. Uh, so I had a great mentor, uh, even though he's a lot younger than me. Ryan Gerber mm -hmm. taught me the ins and outs, really, of, of that. Uh, and then uh, Michael Bashkin, uh, to me, is a huge influence these days. Uh, just an incredible, incredible technician. But um, the funny thing is, is um, Ryan and, you know, Michael and me, we're all wired completely different. Mm -hmm. I still have more of that studio fine arts background where like, you know, I'll go out and, you know, if something isn't going right or whatever, I'll sort of like, you know, roll with the punches or whatever, you know, work it out. And, you know, I just don't get too rough. Whereas like with, a, a you know, a lot of other guys, if you're wired a little bit tight, it can ruin your day. <laughs> and just to bring this up, you know, uh, I, one of the things that made, I, I want to say this whole craft a little bit easier for me was finishing. Um, now, that's kind of the world I came from. Uh, that's the world I got to know really well. And I formulate finishes. I've made finishes. I've made colorments and things like that. So I know uh, the ins and outs of it. But that's something that really is just the Achilles heel for most people getting yeah. in there because you spend all this time on beautiful and you can do beautiful work and then if you can't put a good finish on it you know you're really disappointed it will ruin your life very quickly yeah and if you just don't have the control over it i mean i obviously you partner with somebody who you trust who can do the finishing for you but it must be nice to to be in charge of every step of that process well the thing is there's a lot of things that can go wrong in finishing yeah and uh you know i mean you can get drips you can get you know soundboards that turn like green uh i mean i've had everything happen to me <laughs> And, you know, uh, yeah, you just learn how to kind of fix it. But, you know, I, I, that's that's one I, I leg up that I guess I've always had is that I'm not afraid of anything that happens during the finishing process. Mm -hmm. And but, you know, I've had some real disasters, I must say. But um, <laughs> but, you know, that's how you learn, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about tone woods. Um, Ooh, that was my favorite point. <laughs> do you have any controversial opinions? Well, I have lots of controversial opinions, but uh, not specifically about Tonewoods. Uh, well, I will say this. Um, I, like everybody else, uh, Brazilian rosewood is actually, it, it, if you can get decent wood, it, it, it's really an easy wood to work with. It bends very easily. It, it smells really good and all that. Uh, but I really love Cocobolo. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, uh, I don't think I have a Cocobolo guitar here. Uh, we'll, when we, uh, in a little bit, I'll show you one that I'm building right now for a client. But um, Cocobolo can be a very nasty wood to work with. Yeah. Uh, uh, controversial opinion. I would say that right now, um, there is a lot of talk about torrified soundboards mm -hmm. and for those that don't know a torrified soundboard is a is a soundboard that's been heat treated mechanically uh, to make it mature a little bit uh, faster and a lot of uh, companies are, are exploiting that idea I won't name anybody in particular but you, you'll see like a lot of uh, uh, tone woods advertises maybe age tone or um, heat treated or whatever Baked. Um, baked, yeah, whatever. Uh, tempered is even another word that's used. Um, I'm not really on the bandwagon with mm -hmm. it. Um, I uh, I still like a lot of the classical uh, soundboards, um, but mostly what I use these days are European woods. Mm -hmm. uh, I love German spruce. I just I've never had a disappointing uh, experience uh, with German. I love Swiss spruce. Uh, moon spruce, we call it, uh, is also a really good tone wood. And even some of the lesser known ones, the Carpathians, um, and uh, I'm sure there's a, you know, German, well, we went through German, uh, what was the other one? Uh, but Italian comes Italian, yeah, Italian is a really good one. Uh, and uh, 
But it's, it's something that, uh, if you're not careful, uh, you can amass an awful lot of tongue woods very quickly because uh, there's a lot of really neat stuff out there. Mm -hmm. I'm also a big fan, uh, and we'll, we'll go out and we'll look at some of these in a second, but um, I'm also a big fan of some of the recycled you know, aspects yeah. of using um, the old redwood timbers that were in mines and railroad trestles. Yeah. Uh, wonderful sound out of those and looks and things like that. Um, um, and then, of course, the, the, the salvage, like, you know, was like the bog oaks over in Europe or like the ancient Sitka yeah. that uh, came on the scene not too long ago. But, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of woods that we can use that are already here that we don't need to go out and start, you know, decimating forests and, you know, countries to get uh, good wood. But I think that day pretty much is kind of, um, I think over, I think we've reached a point in society where we can sustainably manage our forests and use what we have yeah uh, yeah you know there's a lot of a, a lot of good wood out there that people are recycling which yeah. is I, I always love to see that yeah like you've got all that synchro mahogany that, that you've used on uh, some of the guitars we've had recently oh, yeah synchro mahogany uh it, it's a wonderful wonderful concept because these are logs that otherwise would just be sitting in the bottom of rivers somewhere um uh most of the synchro mahogany uh like that uh martin's using and if you see it a lot of it, it comes from Belize, mm -hmm. uh, which is what Central America, place like a small country. Yeah. Um, because that's, you know, the old way of logging was, you know, uh, uh, logs would be transported down river from, you know, the woods where they cut them and then they'd go and eventually sink and people go in there to cover them. Uh, the tree, the famous tree, was yeah. not sinker, but it was a tree that was so big it fell into a ravine. And they, they just couldn't it, bring it And they couldn't bring yeah. it out. <laughs> Anyways, um, the sinker mahogany, we'll go take a look at some big planks I have. Uh, mine, the, the stuff that I'm using, was actually recovered from the Hudson River. Yeah, yeah. So um, we did a little bit of research on it, and um, it's a fascinating story. But there was a guy, just to make a real quick story, there was a guy locally here in a suburb of Cleveland that was advertising on Craigslist. Uh, mahogany for sale, big planks, you know, blah, blah, blah. And a friend of mine went down and checked it out. He goes, Jeff, you got to go down and see this stuff. And apparently this guy's nephew uh, worked for a dredging company in uh, New York and they were dredging the Hudson River and pulling these big mahogany locks out. And he said to his uncle, who operates kind of a, a mom and pop sawmill here in, in town, he goes, do you want this stuff? He goes, yeah, sure. So um, we did a little research on it and actually this was a sawmill that operated up until about the 1960s. Uh, and supplied all the mahogany to Martin and Gibson and these big furniture companies. And their sawmill it was right there where it sunk. So we're able to use mahogany that originally would have wound up on a Martin from the 30s or the 20s during the golden era. Yeah. And I mean, just the look of this stuff is just incredible. Yeah. Uh, but the sound is, 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 is really, uh, really quite unique. Mm -hmm. And there's been some... Uh, um, very knowledgeable pe people. George Groon is one I can think of. Uh, is that just he just he thinks the sinker mahogany that's on guitars today is equivalent to the you know the the, the old stuff. Yeah. But I really like working with it, and um, I've got some big planks of it out there. We'll show you in just a little bit. Um, this is also sinker mahogany, okay. and um, that's not sinker mahogany. That's just regular kind. Of, that's a weird mahogany. It's kind of orange colored. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, really... It's called tropical mahogany. Oh, okay. And it's just sort of like an orangey color. Is that like the African mahogany or is that still from... It's not African, Central no. America? It's, it's, I don't know where it's from. It's probably from, you know, um, um, someplace in Central America or something like that. Mm -hmm. But mahoganies have a really expansive growing range. Yeah. But the classic ones, the Honduran mahogany, is, is, is more specific to uh, certain areas, obviously uh -huh. Honduras and Belize and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, yeah, so I, I'm a big mahogany fan. tone woods um i've like everybody else have experimented with some of the alternatives of uh, wenge 
Cataloge, not catalogs. Yeah, Cataloge. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, they don't wow me. They mm -hmm. don't wow me. So I, I kind of stick to what I, you know, are the tried and true uh, uh, tone woods. Um, but we get a lot of requests for the sink of mahogany. Yeah. Let's talk about finishes a little bit because obviously you have way more experience than I think a lot of folks do. And you've, uh, you've been in the finishing business for a long time, but you also have, do you have experience with all the different types? So have you, have you done French polish, polyurethane, nitrocellulose? Have you done it all? I've done them all. Yeah. I've done them all. Uh, the first guitars I did, I French polished. Mm -hmm. uh, the second guitar I finished with aerosol spray cans of lacquer I bought from Stuart McDonald. Um, I did that in my garage at home and, uh, my wife objected to the smell and that's how I got my first shop eventually, but you know, that's a longer out. story. I got booted out. Um, I've done, I tried water base, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, not, not, not wild by it. Um, just, uh, doesn't have that classic look. Um, I used lacquer like everybody else for a nitrocellulose lacquer for a very long time, which is what basically Martin, Gibson, even PRS uses lacquer these days. Santa Cruz, Collins, everybody, you know. Yeah. Uh, it has a lot of benefits. It came on the scene in the 30s and really it's, it's, there's a lot of good things about it. Um, but it just isn't durable enough for me. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, like one of my, I don't like pick guards. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, yeah. it's sort of, throws everything off, particularly if you spend a lot of time on the rosette. Mm -hmm. So I use uh, what is called a urethane or catalyzed urethane finish, mm -hmm. which has kind of like a negative connotation. Oh, you're using poly or, you know, but applied correctly. It's a very durable finish. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get away with not using a pickguard. And it really keeps the guitar looking very, very good for a long period of time and does not require a lot of... Um, you know, like weird cleaners and stuff like that. You know, I don't tell this to people, but, you know, you can clean one of my finishes with Windex if you want to. Wow. <laughs> but it's just, it's very durable because it's equivalent to what's on your car. Yeah. Um, but the real secret with it is you have to learn how to apply it as thinly as possible because mm -hmm. if there, there's a lot of things that luthiers disagree on, um, but one thing that we do kind of all agree on is you should probably, at least on the soundboard, keep the finish as thin as possible. Yeah. And so uh, that, that requires a, a fair amount of um, uh, technique and stuff like that. But I, to me, you know, it, it, you know, I know that a lot of guys, you know, uh, girls, you know, um, uh, you know, when they build a guitar, their big moment is putting, putting the strings on. Mm -hmm. For me, it's that first coat of finish when it's in a spray booth, and then all of a sudden that wood just like goes, whoa. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love when you get those. Oh. when you do those behind the scenes. Yeah, in the, yeah. In the spray yeah. Booth I, I do a videos. lot of that because well, it just <laughs> it just it, totally transforms. Well, it just it wows me so much. I have to uh, share it with other people. Like for instance, like I can't wait yeah. to get this in the booth because this is one of the cleanest German spruce soundboards. Yeah, it's uh, I've ever seen. Almost as good as John's right here. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this sinker mahogany, but I use coca bolo. I made my own binding on this. It's coca bolo, oh, nice. and um, yeah. So it's that first coat of finish. And then of course this is a coca bolo fretboard, which is kind of like really, really kind of outrageous. Yeah, really striking. Yeah, but um, so this will go to the Artisan Guitar Show this April. It'll make its debut, and I've already had some people interested on it. Um, so. Uh, Another benefit of social media, folks, is that, you know, if you sort of like tease the public, you know, you'll yeah. get some, you know, you'll actually get some response. And I, I basically, I, I've had several sales results just from stuff I've done, uh, little video reels in, yeah. the, in, the, in the spray booth. Like, yeah, you know, so it works. Yeah. Um, oh, one question I wanted to ask. Uh, so poly versus like nitrocellulose, isn't one of the benefits with nitro that it's fairly easy to repair? Yes, yes. Okay, so and that's, that's the reason that most guitar companies use it these yeah. days. Because invariably, you're going to get some nicks and scratches yeah. and stuff on the way to the dealer. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's pretty easy to fix those things. Urethane is it's a little bit more, uh, a little tougher. Um, but do you feel, to, do you find that it's it, it doesn't get as dinged and nicked up as... As a nitro is? No, I mean, well, any guitar, if it gets, you know, abused enough, we'll, yeah. we'll get dinged. But um, no, it, 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 
it, it resists the minor scuffs and scratches yeah. of shipping containers and maybe rubbing inside a case that's inside a box and things like that. Yeah. And playing, because if you don't, yeah, if you don't need to use a pick guard, if it's strong enough to withstand that, then that's a pretty good longevity sign. Yeah, well, the thing is, uh, uh, again, um, with a urethane finish, uh, you know, you can clean it with soap. So, yeah, we tell people basically just use like some done dishwashing detergent on mm -hmm. a little kind of a damp cloth. It'll clean it right up. Uh, but it doesn't scratch, you know, like if you use like a microfiber cloth, sometimes you'll get very hairline scratches yeah, on a lacquer swirls. finish. And that's, yeah, but um, um, once I switched over to urethane, I, I just wasn't having problems that um, you, you will get uh, specifically. A, a real big problem a lot of times is, you know, I build in a climate that's Cleveland, Ohio. It's, you know, kind of the Midwest, but it's, you know, really cold and dry in the winter, and it's really hot and humid in the summer. And, you know, you ship a guitar in, like, February or March from here to, say, like, Florida, or something like that, you're asking for trouble. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you know, all sorts of things can happen. I just don't have that problem with, with urethane finishes. So it, it, it's a win-win for me. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of other uh, finishes. Uh, I would recommend if somebody were starting out in, you know, building guitars, is um, there's some actually... Uh, there's some good finishes that you can use on your first guitar. So they're kind of wipe-on finishes. They may not be gloss, but they're sort of like yeah. a satin stuff. And as much as we've tried as luthiers and the industry to convince people that satin finishes are great. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, because they are quite a little bit easier. But the public generally uh, wants gloss. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. the way it goes. Um but if you're really serious and you want to compete in the boutique market, I would probably recommend finding somebody uh, and contract it out. Mm -hmm. And just, uh, I know a number of people that do that yeah. because um, they just don't want to set up a spray booth. Uh, they don't want to be hassled with things that go wrong and things like that. And yeah. And you have to comply with environmental codes and everything. So that's kind of a next step that, yeah, just not everybody has the space for or the, the know-how to really yeah, do exactly. well. So, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, if not, then I would just say uh, uh, get good with lacquer, mm -hmm. uh, nitrocellulose lacquer on your first maybe 5, 10, 15 guitar, something like that, and then try something different. Mm -hmm. um, every year now for the past couple of years, uh, Robbie O'Brien and I have been teaching a class on how to do a urethane finish on mm -hmm. a guitar. Uh, and we can actually do a complete finish from raw wood like this to buffed like this mm -hmm. in five days. Wow. So it's possible. Yeah, it's so, but it's it, yeah, it 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 it's it, it's it's a good way to go if you can. It it it, it reduces a lot of bottlenecks. But as I, as we mentioned, a lot of the big companies don't do it. Mm -hmm. um, what they do is they do lacquer. They may use a performance polyurethane or polyester or something like that to like fill the grain and get like the base coat. What we call right. sealer coats on the guitar, and they'll even cure those with UV lights now to really mm -hmm. speed it up. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, but then they'll put lacquer on top of that. Gotcha. I see. Well, so you just briefly mentioned the your your teaching with Robbie, um, and that's a market. So I, yeah, kind of want to touch on things that you're doing this year, like where people can find you and see you and learn from you or see your guitars and mentioned Artisan, which is coming up in a couple months. I'm doing the Artisan Guitar Show uh, this April uh, 14th, somewhere mid-April or something like that. Uh, it's a, a smaller show. Uh, well, I shouldn't say smaller show, but it's a, um, it, I think it's the first regional show kind of uh, of the year. Um, it's close to Philadelphia, but it's a three-day show, so it, it's not like a real extended period of time. I'll be, um, not only will I be uh, exhibiting there, but I'll be giving a presentation on a brief history of how American guitar finishes or how uh, American guitars were finished oh, from cool. like about 1833 to the present. Awesome. And that was really cool because I interviewed all the big guys, big names. I, I did interviews with Bob Taylor, uh, Richard Hoover at Santa Cruz, uh, Dana Bourgeois, and got kind of their feedback and things like that. And um, it's real. I learned a lot actually. Um, and uh, and then I'll be doing a, a, a presentation on that, uh, and then I'll be doing um, I think uh, I wrote a, 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 an article for the magazine, which will be handed out. But that will be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm teaching a class in July with Robbie O'Brien at the Mark Adams School of Woodworking, which is in Indiana. And that will be uh, not five days this year, that will be seven days. So we're going to have some time to deviate on like how to do like grain filling and some of the other things. And so that will be a lot of fun. That course is um, a go as far as I know. We have about half signed up, so there'll be some more. And then um, I just, you know, I just, I have an Instagram, YouTube channel. Uh, I, I'm one of these guys that I just like to do it all. Uh, like right now, I'm, I'm teaching myself Da Vinci Resolve for film editing. Mm -hmm. That's that's like a whole new world. <laughs> <laughs> and I just did my first video uh, here, you know, right here in the office where we had two cameras set up, and that was, uh, you know, to do that yourself. You know, yeah. now if you have help, somebody else, you know, setting things up. That's one thing. But to get everything lined up and, you know, by so yourself. Hard. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know this because yeah. you do this, too. But uh, I, I get to have Zane do most of it now, which is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice to have help. Mm -hmm. um, but I just enjoy it. I, I just, you know, it, it's for me, it's just uh, it, it's never ending, never ending uh, um, things to, you know, try out and do and uh, get better at. And that's the whole name of the game. It's just, you know, just getting better and upping your skills. And uh, so it's a, a, it, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to get into. And as I said, when, when I first started in this business, it was just like nobody would help you out. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you were on your own. Nowadays, it's like people will practically jump off the uh, your iPhone to help you out. You know? <laughs> And it, but it, 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 it's just a whole different world. So it's really cool. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, it's very, very collaborative. Yeah. Well, before we head out to the workshop, a few, just a couple kind of rapid fire questions I like to say for the end. Um, coffee or tea for powering your day? I think I think I know the answer, but. Coffee in the morning, uh, segue into tea, and definitely <laughs> tea at night. Yeah. Uh, anything past, I think I would say uh, three or four o'clock, I'm gotta be tea. Yeah. Herbal tea or, or still Herbal black? tea. Yeah. Uh, ginger mango. <laughs> mm. Delicious. Yeah. Um, any podcasts or albums that you are really excited about and enjoying while you do? Do you listen to things while you work? Um, I find myself it, it, it's distracting to me a little mm -hmm. bit. I, I've tried it a couple times. Uh, the earbuds keep falling out. <laughs> uh, I tried headphones, and then I can't hear anything that's going on. Yeah. Um, no, I tend to really like silence uh, uh, when I work. And uh, that's just, you know, that, that's just me. As far as podcasts go, um, well, of course, I'm, I love anything that you guys do uh, at uh, the North American Guitar, which is now Carter Vintage, you know, sort of all folded up into one big, beautiful pie now. <laughs> and um, uh, I love Michael Bashkin's podcast that he does for the Fretboard Journal. Uh, those are really, really, really illuminating. Um, Ian Davlin, which is kind of more of a repair guy, he does uh, a, a bunch of podcasts. Uh, he interviews uh, uh, a lot of interesting people. Anything that T.J. Thompson does is, I'm just, I'm there. Mm -hmm. I'm there. I mean, there's heroes that I have, and T.J.'s really up there as far as uh, just one of them. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm still in, in some ways, I'm kind of like old school in that, you know, I do look at print Yeah. a lot. I, I do like holding a book uh, quite a bit. Uh, about, a, uh, I was slow to this, but about a year ago, I finally bought the uh, Gorgelet books, uh, mm -hmm. which is Design and Construction and then Execution. It's a two-series uh, book. And... Um, that to me was an eye opener. I was like, oh wow, okay, that's how they do that. Interesting. That's how, yeah. yeah. So there are some really good ways um, uh, to learn this. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I would say, uh, yeah, out in the shop, I, 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 I have an employee uh, that is kind of running the stain business while I'm doing guitars. And I'm listening to her music and her TV shows and everything else <laughs> while I'm working. So I get plenty of that. Yeah, so you get the outer I stimulus. Get yeah, I get enough of that stimulus. Yeah. Have there been any albums that you've discovered recently that you really enjoyed? You know, it's funny you said that. I, that's not a question I was expecting. but um, I love to hear people's musical backgrounds, okay. too, because obviously we're it's musical instruments. There was, um, in the 70s, okay, there was a uh, female singer 
called Carla Bonoff. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard the name. Yeah, I've heard the name. Carla Bonoff. And she was one of these female singers that was sort of pushed into being the next Linda Ronstadt. Mm, And, you know, like, okay, you know, and back in the 70s, of course, you know, it was probably suggested that she put on a bikini and walk down a sunset beach, and that would be the album cover. It was obviously that was not her shtick. Um, She did a couple of albums, but I remember that she had a couple hit songs, and then I, I just sort of forgot about her. But... I was listening the uh, uh, not too long ago. I, I listened to, to uh, I was trying to figure out an arrangement of the Water Is Wide, mm. the old classic folk song. Yeah, and her version came up, and it just floored me really? how good it was mm. in her voice and her guitar playing. So I went back to it, and apparently, what she did is in the seventies she just disappeared, and she became a songwriter. Okay. She wrote hit songs for Bonnie Raitt, Linda Ronstadt, and a bunch of other people, Roseanne Cash. Oh, I think, yeah, I think I've seen her credited on some yeah. of those songs before. So she became yeah, a yeah. singer-songwriter, just, just went behind yeah. the scenes, maybe raised a family or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when she was like 71, okay, she released an album, okay? <laughs> and I listened to it, and it's fantastic. Nice. So Carla Bonoff, yeah. for a big pitch for Carla Bonoff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, not a name you'll hear a lot of, but, uh, yeah, just really, really just, you know, almost in that, um, Carol King kind of, uh, yeah. singer songwriter groove. Cool. Uh, not maybe the greatest range, you know, mm-hmm. I, she, not a pretty voice, mm-hmm. but just, you know, just the phrasing, yeah. you know, and, you know, which yeah, is of course musical. what makes it, yeah, I'm very musical. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I'm very eclectic in what I listen to. And, um, I, uh. You know, obviously you would think, you know, you know, obviously the Tommy Manuel and, you know, the Norman Blake, the Pickers, you know, the acoustic mm-hmm. guitar people. But I really love, you know, going back into some of the old, uh, like, Ella Fitzgerald and uh, Louis Armstrong albums. Mm-hmm. The old 50s jazz. Um, um, and then, um, oh, who did I follow? Uh, uh, Miles Davis. Yeah. Uh, My Goals Beyond. I hadn't heard that in ages. And I just went, Whoa! <laughs> you know, and I remember um, when I was uh, in, in, in high school, I, I, I had friends that were really into jazz. They were trying to get me to listen to it. And of course, I was into like, Grateful Dead. And, <laughs> you know, I don't want to listen to that and all that stuff. And then, you know, but you just learn, you know, and it's funny how, you know, musical tastes just shift and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of got me into a little bit of a, Celt- uh, a Celtic thing. Um, you know, uh, I started listening to... Um, you posted a soundtrack or something that you were listening to, and I listened to it the other day, and I went, this is the first Celtic music I've heard where I actually understand the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my friend Louis Scuderi's new album. So oh, yeah, that's, that's that his name. Yeah, yeah, it was funny. It was like, yeah. this, is, I, this is intelligible. It's not like, <laughs> and, you know, and then uh, Richard Thompson, I adore. Mm-hmm. And my wife's, uh, my wife, she's very funny because she goes, he's the only British singer who actually sounds like she, he's British. It's kind of true, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like all the other, like, you know, you listen to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, they just sound like, you know, they're just sort of Americanized or mm-hmm. something like that. But yeah, he's got that, you know, real yeah. British type of groove going. And then, you know, to me, it was just so, so amazingly cool that Bonnie Raitt won Song of the Year. Awesome. At the last Grammys. I mean, what, she's 71, 72? And, you know, I just... To have a really good artist win the Grammy to me yeah. was just that was icing on the cake. That was great. I was very, very, very happy for him. Yeah, yeah, it's always nice when that happens. So, what do you say? Uh, your question sounds. I, I would you guys like a tour? Yeah, let's do a tour. tour. Shop? Okay, yeah. all right. Awesome. Sounds cool. All right. So, where do you want to start? You just want to kind of. Uh, I could just say. Uh, yeah, you, it's just. I'm already going. You're already going. <laughs> well. Welcome to Jewel Guitars. We're going to give you a short tour as to basically how we take pieces of wood and we eventually get a guitar out of it at some point. So follow me. Everything starts over here. And we're in a really old building here. This building, I think, was started in the late 1800s. We have huge wooden rafters and beams and all that kind of It's just a cool old building with these big glass block windows that let in plenty of light. 
But everything starts over here in the wood stash. And sometimes we buy sets of wood that are already thinned down pretty much to sides and backs like that. But a lot of wood, we actually cut ourselves. And so we've got, this is what I buy a sinker mahogany. And these are big planks. Uh, here's some curly maple here. Here's some cocobolo. And then of course, Brazilian rosewood. And then we'll cut these down into smaller pieces. And then over here, we have a bandsaw, which will then take something like about that big. And then we can do the backs. So we'll resaw this. We'll probably get about maybe, well, at least four. If I'm really good in the saw blade is sharp, I might be able to get six sets or six backs out of that. Basically, once we get uh, the back and sides done, we go over here and we have a machine, which is just a very standard machine, which is a bender, which then bends the wood into the sides of the guitar. And then once we get the sides bent and the back cut, then we start gluing everything together. This is a Cocobolo guitar that's in the mold. And so the sides have been bent into the shape with the cutaway. And these linings have been installed, which is what the back will get glued to. And we eventually will have this back, which has now been braced. And we've tuned it optimally. And then this will get glued down to that. And then we'll go to work on the soundboard after that's done. So nothing goes to waste. Typically all the off cuts, you can't go throw away any of this wood. What we'll do with those is we'll at some point, so these are all little small pieces of wood, which will make the solid wood rosette. There's a mosaic rosette. That's mm -hmm. probably gonna go on that guitar. So we've taken actual pieces of purfling, binding, all the different woods, and this will eventually get cut out into a small ring for the rosette. Yeah. So this is an awful lot of fun. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So little puzzles. Little puzzles. And so once that's all done, follow me. The guitar gets built and then it goes over here into the finish room. And this is where the good stuff happens. Now this is also probably where a lot of my luthier friends are also gonna like look at this and go, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's nice. So we do have a, a pretty nice spray booth here. Um, we all complying with local codes and ordinances. We had the Cleveland Fire Department in here and sign off on everything. We've got sprinklers on and all that kind of stuff, filters. But yeah, so the guitars all get finished in here. And then once that's done, they dry for about a week or so. And then we go out here again to the buffing process. And we have two buffers which are used to put the final gloss on the guitars. So I have one, and this is also something that drives my luthier friends crazy. I don't have one buffer, I have two. <laughs> okay, so we've got one, because I hate changing wheels. <laughs> so I have one, this is the medium and coarse compounds, and those are the super fine compounds. Oh, okay. So, um, and so that's basically it. It's, you know, as you can see, it's kind of, uh, always in a state of disarray and it's amazing to people like my wife and other people that come in here that these beautiful guitars come out of this sort of madness that <laughs> goes on in here but it is it's, it, it is something that is is quite rewarding once you get everything done mm -hmm. um i should mention i suppose you know as part of the, my travels is we also make all the stains Mm -hmm. for the, uh, the people that, you know, really build guitars like Taylor and Gibson and all that. That's all done over here. So over here we build guitars. On the other side, we actually make stains. We basically 
take a liquid, pump it into uh, a bucket like this. And then what we do is then we go over here and then I have formulas and we add all the different colors to it and mix it all up in one happy liquid. So we'll take red, blue, green, yellow, brown, and all that stuff. These are all different colors and we make all the colors that you see in like in a typical guitar sunburst. And then uh, these are dispensed in these right here. So this is all our colors that we make. And it is sort of, I want to say it's a Jekyll and Hyde thing because this is really messy over here. And then it's not uncommon that like I'll be working over here and I'll get all sorts of different dyes and colors on my hands or something or in my hair. <laughs> and then I go wipe down a soundboard with water and I get little blue dots on it. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, but um, so this is... J.B. Jewett. This is the palace. This is the palace. This is where, yeah, this is where it all happens. And uh, anyways, uh, it's my world. Welcome to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Talking Guitar. We have a beautiful quartet of Jewett guitars in the shop right now, including two of my personal favorites, which are Jeff's take on the double O design, one in walnut and redwood, and the other in Italian spruce and figured Indian rosewood, as well as a very unique white oak triple O and a cedar cocobolo OM. And of course, if you're interested in ordering a custom model through us, Kim or I would love to help you. Links to Jeff's site, all available guitars, and our contact info will be in the show notes below. As always, more Luthier chats are coming up next with Frank Sly of Sylvan Guitars, Simon Haycraft of Preston Thompson, and more. So be sure to check back next week for the latest episode. <laughs>